going to skip, I'm going to skip some kind of intro-y stuff, and um, we're going to go straight to the scriptures, okay? Uh, we're going to go straight, straight to 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and um, uh, this is where we find King Jehoshaphat. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, it's going to be up on the Sky Bible, but if you want to turn in your Bibles, I do love the sound of turning pages because it is the sound of engagement. Unless you have an iPad, then it sounds kind of silent. It's like... Um, we find King Jehoshaphat, and uh, he has, he's just coming out of a time where he had uh, wrongly aligned himself with the evil king of Israel at that time. Israel would have an evil king. Yes, sometimes Israel had evil kings. Sometimes Judah had evil kings. Um, let me explain that a little bit. There was a time when, sorry? Oh, okay. Um, just want to make sure if you're bringing correction to my doctrine that I'm able to go ahead and say the right doctrine. Um, Judah and Israel, Judah is a tribe of Israel. We know that, yes, Judah is one of the tribes. But there was a time when Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem were split off from the nation of Israel. There were two nations and two kings. So at this time, Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah and Jerusalem. And then Ahab is the king of Israel. And, um, and, and Jehoshaphat is repenting from his time, time aligning himself with the evil king Ahab. And in this time of repentance, seek, he's seeking the Lord. He's putting his trust in the Lord. We have these groups of people, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the citizens or the, the people of Mount Seir. And they're coming out against him in war. And um, Jehoshaphat has some reason to be afraid. Why would he have a reason to be afraid? Well, to set the context a little bit, Jehoshaphat, his last experience with battle was really bad. And he barely escaped with his life. So the imprint in his mind is of defeat. There's some of you who your imprint in your mind of warfare is defeat. And God wants to shift that this morning. But instead of leaning on his own understanding and cowering, he seeks the Lord and he asks the Lord for help. And help comes. Help comes in the form of a prophetic word from a man named Jehaziel. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at 2 Chronicles chapter 20, right when Jehaziel begins to speak, and we see the response from King Jehoshaphat and Judah and the, the inhabitants of, of Jerusalem, starting in verse 15. Jehaziel speaking, it says, and he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours, but God's. The battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up the ascent of Ziz, come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not find or you will not need to fight in this battle. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel with a very loud voice. I like that. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, 
The Lord set an ambush against the men of, of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. Very interesting passage. I love this passage. I'm a worship leader, and so this kind of thing is just music to my ears. No pun intended. <laughs> we're going to pray, but I'm, I'm a son who sings. And so we're going to sing before we pray. Is that okay? We're going to sing a prayer. Just because I can't help but sing. I just, it's just, I mean, I feel like most of the reason I'm sucking, a big part of the reason I'm sucking air on this planet is because God, God, I'm a singer. I'm a son who sings. So we're going to sing. I believe that you are healing me. So I'll sing over my circumstance till the miracle appears. Let faith arise, the kind that mountains fear. No weapon formed against me will prosper here. And I'll shout down my giants, and praise will break my silence. And all my enemies are scattered at your name. Fear has to go. Depression has no place in every stronghold. Come on. Come on. God, we thank you that as we lift praises to you, that you are routing our enemies, that you are confusing the enemy's camp and causing them to turn on each other, just like you did with the Moabites and the Ammonites and the inhabitants of Mount Seir. God, and we thank you for your word today. We pray your truth would stand and be planted deep inside of our hearts. And we would walk away not only fed and filled, but transformed from the inside out. In Jesus' name, let it be so. Amen. Oh, man, I'm so excited. Here we go. Here we go. It's time. It's time. Did, any, did you guys play tag as a kid? Yeah. All right. So me too. And how many of you played tag? All right. Cool. Yeah, it's pretty universal. We played tag. There's a few things that help you play tag. What, what would be a good attribute for playing tag? Speed fast. Yeah, speed. Speed is really important for tag. If you're not that fast, it's also helped to be agile, right? If you got jukes, you don't have to be as fast as the fastest person as long as you can dodge them. In the first gathering, I said, so you can break their ankles. And everyone was like, ooh. And I'm like, do you guys understand the term? The term break your ankles is not about actually breaking someone's ankles. It's about you juking them so bad that it's as if their ankles broke because you got the moves. I just want to give you a little bit of, a little bit of teaching in that area here real quick this morning. So, um, there are also rules to the game of tag, yeah? Rules. Do you guys remember um, no puppy guarding? That one, first gathering, people were like, no puppy guarding, what's that? Okay. But you for sure remember no tag backs. Very important. For the, for the game to function how it's supposed to, I mean, no tag backs is kind of an obvious one. If you're not playing with no tag backs, you're not really playing the game of tag. But my least favorite rule, and it might have been your most favorite rule, depending on your athleticism, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm not very athletic either, but I just didn't like it because it makes the game kind of pointless, and that is... The rule, of t- the rule of base. You guys remember base? Oh. So you got this little, this little kid who has got kind of this like complex where his parents have taught him that he always wins and he gets a trophy no matter what. And so he kind of gets to change the rules as he goes to make him win. You know that? Uh, just really annoying. Really, really annoying. 
And uh, he goes, okay, the big tree by the fence, that's base. He has kind of like a squeaky, or he or she, whatever, but he has kind of a squeaky, annoying voice. So it's more like, it's more like okay, the big tree by the fence is base. <laughs> and you're like, okay, let's play. All right, just got to keep him from getting by the big tree. So you're, you're running, you're running after him, and you see him, and he's not touching the big tree, but he's touching the fence. And you're like, well, that doesn't protect him. So you run, you tag him, and you say, you're it. And he goes, no, I'm on base. And at that point, if you're like me, and you're a left brain, and you're a little bit A-type, you go, we set the rules at the beginning of the game, bro. We already said what base was. You don't get to change the rules now. But because you don't want to be that guy, you let, it, you let it pass. And you're like, okay, let's just keep playing. Let's keep it cool. Want to have fun. This is about fun. It's not about rules. It's about fun. You're playing again, and you see this kid. And this time, he has his hand on the car. And you're like, well, that certainly isn't base. So you run. You tag him. You say, you're it. He goes, no, I'm on base. And at this point, if you're like me, you're like, I'm, I'm fixing to quit this game. Because you cannot keep switching this up on me, okay? Either base is, either that's base or it's not. And it's so annoying. I, 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 gotta, I gotta be honest with you guys. To me, like, base kind of defeats the purpose of tag. Because if, so, if someone gets on base and they just stay there, that's not a game anymore. It's just watching someone touch a tree. No fun at all. Super, super annoying. Because as soon as someone is on base, they're, they're untouchable. Now I'm going to make the super cool, suave preacher transition into from the metaphor to the actual message. I want to talk to you guys today about being untouchable and how to be a great annoyance to your enemies. Okay? A great annoyance. Uh, I want to talk today about weapons of our warfare. The, the message is called Armed and Dangerous. thought it was kind of catchy, but afterward, I'm just kind of feeling like I shouldn't have even said the title. I should have just told you the topic. We're talking about weapons of our warfare. Um, sometimes we, th- we think about spiritual warfare and we think it's really kind of ethereal and kind of like... Um, I don't know, like this, you know? And, it, and, and I'm sure there are elements that are like that because there is a spirit world and it's very, very real. But I would argue that it's actually very practical and it doesn't have to be spooky. It's a normal part of the Christian life. That it's not just for intercessors. It's not just for people who know how to get in this place and declare. That is for every person who calls himself a follower of Jesus. Spiritual warfare is for you. It's for me. We're all called to it. We're all soldiers in the Lord, Lord's army. Amen? So we're going to get into the weapons, seven weapons I have for you today. Seven weapons for spiritual warfare. The first one is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. We're going to be, these, these weapons are all going to come from the scriptures, primarily from 2 Chronicles 20, but also from a few other scriptures we'll read really soon. So in 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 21, the singers are sent out before the army and they say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. I think a helpful definition for Thanksgiving today is going to be declaring and reflecting on the works of God declaring and reflecting on the works of God. So what God has done, what God is doing, what God is yet to do, we're talking about God's actions, okay? That's how we're gonna define a working definition for Thanksgiving today. Examples, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you for making a way for me to be close to the Father. Thank you for giving me a family. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of Harlow City. Those are examples of Thanksgiving. Why is Thanksgiving a weapon? Thanksgiving reminds us of what God has done and is doing and gives us confidence that he will do it again. He will do it again. That he, he hasn't failed yet and he's not about to start failing. You guys feel me with that? You know that? I just love that song. I've seen you move. You move the mountains, and I believe, oh, no, no, no. I'll see you do it again. You made a way. Hey. 
when there was no way. And I believe I'll see you do it again. That is thanksgiving. That is declaring and reflecting upon the works of the Lord to remind us who we have with us in battle. Okay? Second weapon is praise. Praise. It says in verse 19, says that the Levites stood up and praised God with a very loud voice. Hmm. I have to admit, I am tempted in this moment. I am tempted to use this scripture to justify the volume of the music at Heart of the City Church. But, but, I will refrain and continue. Verses 21 and 22, it says that they sang to the Lord and praised him. I think a helpful working definition for praise this morning is declaring and reflecting on the attributes of God, the character of God, the nature of God, who he is. When we're talking about Thanksgiving, we're reflecting and declaring what he does, and in praise, we're declaring and reflecting on who he is. There is a difference between the two things. Some examples of praise. God, you are good. You are good, good, oh, and you are good, good, and oh, come on, okay, that is declaration of praise, okay, there's a difference, there's thanksgiving and there's praise, why is praise a weapon? Praise is a weapon because it reminds us of the nature of God, that he is a God who has our back. He is a God that always comes through. He is a God that has good thoughts toward us and that he can bring us through any situation that we are facing. Thanksgiving is a weapon because it reminds us of what God is capable of and praise is a weapon because it reminds us who he is. Third weapon is worship. In verse 18, it says that all of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord and worshiped him fell down before the Lord and worshiped him. The way that um, I want to define worship this morning is posturing ourselves. Posturing. Posturing ourselves in, in a position of connection and intimacy and surrender to the Lord. Now, why would you say posturing? Why, why, why? I thought worship was music. Um, worship definitely can be expressed in music. But the actual definition of the word that we see throughout the Old Testament and New, in Hebrew, in the original Hebrew, in this, in this passage, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, the, the Hebrew words for, for worship are shakah and sakhad. And what they mean are to bow down or to make oneself prostrate. Are we familiar with bow down and prostrate? Yes. And in the Greek, it's proskuneo, which also means to lie prostrate. Really interesting, those two words together. It's, proskuneo is a compound word. The two words are to kiss, toward. To kiss toward put together is to lie prostrate. And I'll show you why. Okay, this is bowing. This is prostrate. I'm kissing the ground. It's such a high esteem, such an adoration, that you put yourself at total mercy of the person you are worshiping. Total transparency, total vulnerability, total intimacy, total trust, total closeness. Examples of worship are bowing and lying prostrate, both physically and of the heart. In the Old Testament, we see it physically represented a lot. In the New Testament, we see it more as an action. Offer yourselves up as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual worship. 
You guys know the Old Testament is, is, is a foreshadowing of what is to come, the greater covenant in the new. And so now that doesn't mean that we don't physically lie prostrate or physically lie bow, bow anymore. But the point is that our spirit is bowing. Our spirit is lying prostrate before the Lord. And it's a weapon because it denies, if you guys remember Craig talking about the flesh, the world, and the devil. It denies the flesh, the world, and the devil of our devotion. It reminds us of our loving relational connection with the Lord and how everything else, everything else pales in comparison to that. How many of you know that there is nothing that compares to a moment face-to-face with the king? There's nothing that compares to the experience, the taste and see of his manifest presence. I want to tell you, Heart of the City Church, if you're new here, we are a people who chase the manifested presence of God. We believe that he's with us at all times, but there is a different type of awareness that we step into when we step into thanksgiving and praise and worship and look at things through the eyes of faith where all of a sudden something just shifted in the room. He's with us always, but my question to you is, are you always with him? I don't mean that to come across rude at all because it's easy, friends. Let me just show you how to get in the presence. I just set my affections on him. You don't have to even do this. I don't even want, just. You're here. You're good. It's not, it's not some weird little thing you gotta do. Set your attention on God and feel the atmosphere of the room change. Set your affections upon him. Be, begin to let thanksgiving and praise and worship and faith and his word escape from your lips. And just begin to feel him wrap. You know, he's, you may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. That is the reality all the time, friends. But for whatever reason, sometimes we get our eyes off the prize. And we're like, God, where are you? Won't you come? And he's like, how about you come? How about you come to the throne of grace? How about you lift your eyes? How about you fix your eyes on me? I've been waiting here the whole time. You want to taste and see that I am good? Okay, stick your tongue out, open your eyes, and taste and see that I'm good. Not literally. You guys feel me. Come on. Don't get weird. (laughs) While thanksgiving and praise are directly tied to things we say, worship is more tied to an action. All right. uh, Weapon number four, faith. Weapon number four is faith. Verse 20, Jehoshaphat told the people, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. Someone needs to hear that today. This is so much more than believing God exists, although it is that. It's so much more than believing that Jesus died on the cross for you and made a way for you to experience eternal life through him, although it is very, very much that, and it's very, that's a very, very important part of faith. But Hebrews 11 defines faith as this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You know, in the English language, we have these two words, hope and wait, right? Hope and wait. I wait, I hope. In Spanish, it is the same word. Espero que, espero que. Think about that for a minute. I think sometimes 
When we use the word hope, we go, well, maybe it'll happen, and I just hope that maybe somehow it could just. But espero que, I hope, I, or I, I wait. I wait because I am expecting it to happen. There is a difference, friends. Hope was never meant to be something that passive where you just, you just do this and, and go, oh, I just hope that everything changes. <laughs> It is a very active thing. It is, no, I am waiting because I am believing that God told me so, and so it's going to happen, and I am pursuing the promise over my life. That is real hope, y'all. That is real faith. It goes on to say, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's important to believe God exists, okay? That's very, very base level, but even the demons believe. So we got to go a little deeper than the demons, huh? Probably. We must reward, we must believe that he rewards those who seek him. Some of us are caught up in, a, in this weird, just defeatist doctrine that says that you just believe him, but that you don't believe that he rewards those who seek him. But the Bible says right there in Hebrews 11 that if you are going to draw near, how many of you want to be close to God? Then you better believe he rewards those who seek him. How many of you want to draw close to God? Then you better believe he rewards those who seek him. That's what it says. Faith is the catalyst for the will of God to be done on earth. Faith is the catalyst. It's, it's, the, it's the chemical that you add to the experiment and it goes poof. We're going to talk a little bit more about faith in a minute when we talk about prayer. But why is faith a weapon? Because it trusts the promises of God over the current situation. Because it places the kingdom reality above the current reality. Because it partners with the power of God to see the atmosphere change and for the situation to be transformed. That's why faith is a weapon. For the other weapons, we're going to look at a few other passages of Scripture. First, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 10, the second letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. For though we, uh, starting in verse 3, 2 Corinthians 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Weapon number five is dominion over mind. Dominion over mind. The world has told us a lie that our mind, our will, and our emotions, which we can sum up and call our soul, our mind, our will, and emotions, the world has said that our actions and our words should flow from our soul in order for us to be truly genuine. wrong The kingdom reality, the kingdom reality is that true genuineness and sincerity is derived from who we are at the core of our being, which is the spirit person. And sometimes, while the world is saying, no, just be true to your heart, what we need to be doing is training our heart. We need to, we see examples of this in, in the Bible. David says, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Don't forget his benefits. I don't really know if you can hit your soul. It doesn't really work like that. No reason to beat up on your chest. Is, yeah. What he was doing, though, is training his soul to come into alignment with his spirit, which was in alignment with the Holy Spirit. The only time, okay, here we go. The heart... Let me, you guys know the phrase, follow your heart. Worst phrase, not worse. There's many worse phrases. Really bad phrase. 
phrase we shouldn't say because that's not what God says. In fact, he challenges the people of Israel in the book of Numbers. Oh my. He challenges the people. He said, following your hearts, which you are inclined to whore after. Okay, ESV. Did you have to do that word? I'm just reading the scriptures, y'all. Which you are inclined to whore after. How does God view following your heart? No, instead, what scripture encourages us to do is to guard our hearts. Because the only time that the heart can be trusted is when it has been guarded and instructed by the Spirit, which is being led by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say that again. The only time that the heart can be trusted is when it is led by the Spirit, which is led by the Holy Spirit. That is the line. That's the chain of command. We are not to be led by our soul. Sometimes I got this new dog. He's amazing. He's a hound. His name is Moses. I love him to death. He does terrible things, and I love him even more. I'm beginning to have a revelation of God's love for me through this dog because this dog is, is a jerk, and, but I love him so much. I'm telling you, I, I take one look at him, and I just, I just love this dog. I'm not going to say what I feel like saying because I have a microphone. Okay. So, but this dog, sometimes the reason I even brought that up is because I believe that sometimes our soul is an unruly dog. Moses does not lead me. I lead Moses. He's my, he's my dog. Not the, actual, not the Moses, you know, the, <laughs> the dog. We're on, a, we're on a walk and he's doing the... He's pulling so hard that he's choking himself. And I'm telling you, I will wrap the leash all the way up to where he's on my leg. And I'm like, you are not leading me. You are not leading me. I lead, I'm the leader, you're the follower. And that's exactly what our spirit person needs to do to our soul, y'all. The soul was never meant to lead. It, the soul is a beautiful gift. The soul is a great travel companion. It's a terrible travel guide. That's what Judas Smith says. Terrible travel guide. Never meant to be in front. Meant to be in back. And I pull my soul along. My spirit man says, soul, this is what you're about to do. You're about to praise the Lord. You're about to think right. You're about, you're about to love people. You're about to mingle with people even when, you feel, even when you're, you're introverted and you just want to be by yourself. And you lead your soul with your spirit person. That's how we'd be genuine, y'all. Okay. 2 Corinthians 10, we see that we have the responsibility to destroy arguments and opinions that, that raise up against the knowledge of God. And we're supposed to take every thought captive. And I'm telling you, sometimes we look at take every thought captive and we're like, just change the subject in your mind. <laughs> Absolutely not. That's called avoidance. What we are called to is war. So let me show you what it's like to take dominion over your mind. You are the gatekeeper of your mind. You get to stand at the gate with the weapon, a deadly weapon. And you are the inspector of every single thought that tries to come in those gates. I'm telling you right now, there are some of us who are just wallowing in guilt and shame and sin and guilt and shame and sin because we think that when a thought comes that we've sinned and it's already too late. And so we might as well just go all the way. When in reality, the thought coming is the temptation and it's time for you to get in your battle station, stand at the gate and say, are you for or against the knowledge of God? Because if you are against I will destroy you. Come on. <laughs> that is taking every thought captive. I'm telling you, every thought that comes to the gate of our minds, whether good or bad, first you put handcuffs on it, just to see. You put handcuffs on it. Are you, are you for or against the knowledge of God? Oh, I'm for. Okay, all right, go ahead. 
But if one comes that's against you, you handcuff it. Are you for or against the knowledge of God? I'm against. Destroy. Are we familiar with the term destroy? That's what we do with thoughts that come against the knowledge of God. You have authority because of the spirit of God living inside you. Because you are not dead. You are raised to life with Christ. If you think that your thought life, if you think that your thought life is not impacting your reality, then that very thought is impacting your reality. Whether you are aware of your thoughts changing the very reality you're experiencing or not does not change whether the thoughts are actually changing your reality. I kind of feel like uh, Bilbo, you know, where he's like, uh, I know, I know, I know less than half of you have as well as you'd like, and I like less than half of you have as well as you deserve. But you get the point. You get the point. Whether you're thinking about your thought life or not, your thought life is impacting your reality. It's very real. Very real. All right. Um, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, starting in verse 13. It's on the Sky Bible. You don't have to turn. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Therefore, stand. Therefore, (laughs) fasten on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts. If the flaming darts coming at you were sin, this would be a very interesting scripture. Mm-mm. You stop them before they become sin because you're the gatekeeper of your mind. And you destroy them and you don't let them inside the gates. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. The only fully offensive part of the, battle, of the armor of God, although lots of it could be used for offense. If you ever think about a breastplate, you just take it off real quick and bash someone with it. There's lots of ones that, that could be offensive. But the sword is pretty much exclusively offensive, and it is the word of God. The word for word here in the Greek is really interesting. It's rhema. I thought it would have been logos. Why is that important? Rhema is the spoken word of God. It's a very specific type of logos. Logos is the general term used for communication in words, while rhema is very specific. Rhema is, it has to be spoken. So really what the scripture is saying is that you take the sword of the spirit, which is the spoken word of God. Isn't that interesting? It is, the sword is the spoken word of God. And, and I think that some of us, we, we, we limit this to scriptures. Although I think scriptures are a very important part of it. We see Jesus we see Jesus waging war against the enemy in the desert with scriptures. They're actually having a scripture fight. You should read the passage sometime. They're like throwing scriptures at each other, but Jesus knows the context. There's power in context, just so you know. The devil was using the wrong context, and Jesus was like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is what the Bible actually says. It's important to know the whole of scripture if you're going to make arguments about a single scripture. Let me just tell you that real now. So scriptures are very important. Memorizing scripture is not just to indoctrinate your kids. It is target practice. Come on. It's getting ready for war. But it's not the scriptures alone. Let me tell you, the rhema word also implies prophetic words that have been given to you from the Holy Spirit and also to other people. There are some people in here today who have been sitting on a prophetic word that you got five or ten years ago and you've just been waiting. And you're wondering why you're feeling defeated. And it's because you've been sitting with your your sword in your sheath because you won't speak it out. The word becomes a sword when it is spoken. The word becomes a sword when it is spoken. So whether it is scripture or the prophetic word that has been given you that better be in line with scripture, it must be spoken to become the rhema. Okay, last one, constant prayer. Constant prayer is the last weapon. (sighs) 
I don't know why, but verse 18, um, it kind of gets separated from the armor of God, even though there's only a comma that's separating it from verse 17. Sometimes I think the verse numbers get us a little astray because we're like, oh, that's a separate thought from this thought, when really it's just a comma. It's just a praying at all times in the Holy Spirit. Prayer, when combined with faith, is the unlocking and unleashing of God's will on earth. I'm going to say it again. Prayer, when combined with faith, is the unlocking and unleashing of God's will on earth. You know, I was, I, was, I was at a conference this past week, and I heard this, this, this preacher, and he just was, his name was William McDowell. And he, he said, God is not creating miracles or answers to prayers right now. He's just releasing them. God exists without, outside of time. It's not like he's like, oh, I better figure out a problem, a fix for this problem. He's releasing them. Now, how does the release work? Now, I, 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 oh, this is so much. God is all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants, but he has chosen to work with us. And some of the primary ways that he works with us is through prayer, but specifically the prayer of faith. Prayer with faith. I, I, this is the way that I think about it, and if it's the wrong way, then elders, you can show me that I'm in error. But it's like God has this humongous water balloon of, of answers. And when we pray out in faith, it's like we're, we're popping the water balloon. And God is releasing these things. He goes, I have such good plans for you. But I want to work with you because you're my friend and I want to be close to you. Could he have made us robots? He sure could have. But he made us children. And he made us friends. And he wants to walk this journey with us. Why would we have an interaction with his will being accomplished on the earth? Because he actually likes us, believe it or not. He likes to hang out with us. And one of the ways that he can draw us into hanging out is to go, hey, when you talk to me, it actually unleashes the things that I already want to do for you. When you believe that I am the promise keeper, it actually releases the promises that I told you. Oh. Specifically, it says praying in the spirit at all times. Praying in the spirit. Praying in the spirit. Now, there's some differences of opinion on this about um, what praying in the spirit means. Now, I think there's some really good evidence in Romans chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians 14. I think there's some really, really good evidence that points to praying in the Spirit being synonymous with praying in tongues. I really do. If you look at those scriptures, it really feels like what he's talking about is praying in tongues. Now, whether praying in the Spirit is exclusive to praying in tongues, I'm not going to make that argument today. But what I am going to make an argument of is that I believe it's very clear in Romans 8 is that to pray in the Spirit is to pray by means of the Spirit, which means... Spirit, I don't know what to pray, and I need you to show me, and not just show me how to pray, but that you would even pray through me, that you would even pray through me. And so if it's exclusively tongues, great, and if it's not, it's at, at the very least, it is submitting my heart to the Holy Spirit and saying, I will pray wrong. I want to pray according to your will. Will you pray through me? Will you pray through me to see your will, the things you already want done, released and accomplished on this earth? If you, oh, oh. if you, it's so important to be filled with the Spirit. I was talking to Steve Parham this morning, and this just came out of me. I said, we don't just need skilled people, we need filled people. Another rhyme. 
That's for you, Clark. Another rhyme. We don't just need skilled people. We need filled people. In order to accomplish our purpose on this earth, we must be filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And if you're going, Seth, either I don't know if I agree with that or I don't know if I'm filled or any, you know, negative emotion you're having right now, I'm not here to bring condemnation. I'm not here to bring uncomfortableness. I'm not here to bring anxiety. All I'm saying is you need to be filled and I need to be filled and we need to be filled. And it's not just a one-time thing in 1981. It's a well that never runs dry that we must come back to and come back to. And let me, let me, let me just say that just, as you grow in the Lord, you increase in, compass, in capacity. If a cup increases in, compass, in capacity, doesn't it need more liquid in order to be full? Yep. So as you are growing and maturing in the Lord, you need to be filled some more. You need to be filled and filled and filled. Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What he's actually saying grammatically right there is to be being filled. Receive the constant pour that's coming from heaven. Open your eyes to see that there is so much more. Seven weapons, thanksgiving, praise, worship, faith, dominion over mind, declaration of the word, constant prayer. I didn't go studying, I didn't go studying, um, go into studying this week, I haven't already decided the weapons and looking for the scriptures to prove the weapons that I already knew about. I went to the scriptures to find the weapons. There's a difference. That's eisegesis versus exegesis. The scripture is not there to prove our opinions. The scripture is there to form our opinions. I'm going to say that again. Scripture is not there to prove our opinions. It is there to form our opinions. And if you're going to use the scriptures as a weapon, it's important to know what they mean. We've got to have the word written on our hearts. As I was searching and finding these weapons, I found this, this thread that was woven among the seven. And it was that they all had to do with shifting our focus from the problem to the problem solver. From the mountain to the mountain mover. From the liar to the promise keeper. You know, it says in Ephesians 2, I'm sorry, that's, oh, that's later. I don't really have a later. Um, in 2 Chronicles 20 and Ephesians 6 there's, there's a similar phrase in both one of them is stand firm hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf and the other is that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm stand therefore why is this important because it reminds us of our default position we familiar with the term default starting place if you don't move you start here where is your default position having already won your default position is victor because of what Jesus has already done. You're already wearing the championship belt. In order for someone to pull off of you, that off of you, which they can't, they have to come and challenge you. You are already standing in the place that says, look, look, like sometimes we think about spiritual warfare and we think, I'm going to find myself a demon. I'm going to go find a demon and kill it. You don't need to go looking out for, for, for principalities and powers, y'all. They'd be up in your grill. Principalities and powers be, are right, or they're up in your grill. But here's what we can do. What spiritual warfare looks like us is we stand and we say, my dad says I win. My dad, sa- my dad says that the ending doesn't look very good for you. That's the place that we stand. That's the place that we stand. You know, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 says that God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. 
For those of you who were not friends, friends, oh, I mess this joke up every time. <laughs> it's past tense. Oh, gosh. It's past tense. Did you hear that? The ED at the end of those words? Past tense. It's already done. It's already done. My discovery of these weapons leads me to conclude that the greatest weapon that we have in spiritual warfare is not derived from what's in our hands. It's derived from, our, from where we are, and more specifically, who we draw near to. It is our proximity to God. A great memory tool, inspired by Clark Menzies, great memory tool for this is our greatest ammunition. Are we familiar with that ammunition, like bullets? Our greatest ammunition is our location and position. Our greatest ammunition is our location and position. I don't actually know who's going to come up on stage and help me this gathering. Is it you, Logan? Come on. I want to show you what I think spiritual warfare should look like for a believer. All right, we're going to play tag. You're it. Go. I'm on base. Okay, hold on. You're it. Go. I'm on base. Okay, you're it. Go. I'm on base. Now, if I was Logan right now, I'd be very confused and I'd be very upset because it seems like the rules are changing. But the reality is I forgot to tell him that the rule isn't changing. The rules remain the same. But the rule at the beginning of the game is everywhere that I go is where base is. Let's give Logan a hand clap. Y'all, if we believe what scripture says, then we believe that the spirit of God is living inside of us. His very presence is with us. We have unlimited access. It's like 24-7, you know, gym access. You know, you just get to, you get to go on at any time, except you don't have to drive all the way there, and you don't have to sweat. <laughs> we have full access to the presence of God. It's just a lifting of the eyes, a turning of the head. And when we stand in the position of standing firm, in the presence, in the location of the presence of God, in that place, the weapons of our enemies cannot prosper. Okay, we made it through. I'm about to have you stand, but I have a challenge for you before you stand. You guys ready for this? Do I have permission to challenge you? Yes. Oh, but you don't know what I'm about to say. That's the best part about preaching and asking for permission for something, that people are going to say yes, because it's rude not to say yes, but you don't know what you're getting into. This is my admonition to you. When a preacher says stand, that is not the time for you to leave the room. Receive it in love, receive it in love. <laughs> Why? Why? Because this is not a house where you come to eat a meal and burp on your way out. This is a house for equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And I'm telling you, what the Bible says is that heaven rejoices over someone coming into the kingdom. And so that's what we rejoice over. And so if you don't think that the altar call applies to you or the time when people are stepping into the kingdom of God is relevant to you or that you are above it, that's not just incorrect. It's arrogant and it's rude and it's wrong. Stepping out when we stand up is like watching, Logan just told me this, is like watching the Super Bowl getting to the fourth quarter. It's a tied game. There's three seconds left and you go, I got to go do my laundry or something. We've been waiting for this all week. We're breathing air to see people come into the kingdom of God. There's nothing nonchalant about it. Lunch can wait. You don't need to miss the rush. 
Did you receive it in love? Oh, good. It was meant in love. It was meant in love. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. You can stand. 